Hi, I'm George Gale, and this is The Next Move, where we're talking about how we can build the future we want from this moment. I run People's Action. People's Action is an organization made up of hundreds of thousands of low-income and working-class people from across the country. We are urban, suburban, and rural, and we do community organizing to build power to fight for the changes that people want in their lives. As the pandemic hit, I mean, overnight, everything changed. Like, really everything. And when things change a little bit, I want to get with people and think about it and process it together. So I started calling folks up, start having conversations. And no matter who I called, somebody had an insight that helped shift how I think, which then helped shift how my organization thinks and how we act out in the world. And I kept thinking, like, more people should hear this. More people should have these insights. They shouldn't be stuck with me or stuck with their organization. They should be available to more people. Let's rewind, do these calls, and make sure the tape's running. The murder of George Floyd, plus more people wakening to the murders of Breonna Taylor, Tony McDade, and Ahmaud Arbery, have rightly sparked an uprising. And out of incredible anger and mourning is somehow emerging a sense of possibility. And that is an amazing thing. I think now we have an obligation to figure out how we extend this moment for as long as possible, how we help as many people in this country make meaning of the moment and come to a new and better place around anti-black racism in America. And we've got to win stuff. Like we actually have to figure out how to win as many things and as many structural things that improve black lives now and into the future. And I'm really excited to talk to Maurice Mitchell from the Working Families Party and a leader of the Movement for Black Lives about just that. Preparing for today, I was like, shit, I think Maurice and I skipped doing a real one-on-one. Like, because I actually didn't know your organizing around police violence dates back to your college days. That is correct. Can you say something about that or? So I grew up in a, a town called Long Beach on the South shore of Long Island. It was a racially diverse, but then also very racially complicated place. And I I wanted to escape from racial complications, which is one of the reasons why I went to Howard University. Right. Which is a black school. I wanted to be me outside of the, the racial context of whiteness. And that's why I went to Howard and why I went to DC. Um, but it was at Howard that one of our classmates, Prince Jones, he was cornered by an undercover police officer who stalked him in his car and Prince tried to evade him. Um, And the undercover police officer shot and killed Prince. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that politicized so many people. I was already politicized coming into school, but that took it to the next level. And it was through the activity around Prince where I organized my first direct action. And my first direct action was a massive direct action. You know, because at the time I was a campus radical, I got invited to a a secret meeting. And the meeting was about like, how are we gonna respond to to Prince's killing? And I remember they were like, oh, we wanna do a march down Georgia Avenue, which what, Georgia Avenue is, is the heart of the black community. And I remember I said, you know, we live in DC. The Department of Justice is like, you know, not too far. Why not go there? And we should try to occupy it. We should just try to occupy mm-hmm. the Department of Justice. That'll cause something. <laughs> and, you know, at the time, like, 
I, I hadn't developed a sophisticated understanding of targeting, but that just felt right. Like, mm-hmm. why are we shutting down business in a black community when it's the authorities that did, did this to us? And I was able to sway the, the crowd convincingly. And we organized this march of uh, about a thousand Howard students. We shut down the Department of Justice. It was on CNN. That transformed me. Uh, that experience. Um, and I wanted more of that feeling of being able to organize something that large scale, uh, that impactful, because directly after that, uh, they immediately had a few of us, not my, myself, a few of us go into the Department of Justice, negotiate with them. Then afterwards, the undersecretary came to Howard. And I saw how one direct action could actually cause a, mm. a, an immediate reaction from, from your target. Um, and I also like the, the the fact that I was able to organize that with relative anonymity. Like people did not know that I was the action planner behind it, uh, that I, I provided the action logic, that I organized that. And I, I fell in love with the ability as organizers to elevate the demands, elevate the story, elevate Prince and his life, um, and create the conditions to do that versus elevating yourself, which is why I always really connected with the identity of an organizer versus an activist. Mm. Yes, exactly. Wow. I, I, I feel like I got to jump ahead because of something you said, like the organizing maxim, you know, the action is in the reaction. Mm-hmm. I feel like in the moment of George Floyd's murder, we're like seeing action, reaction, action, reaction. Like what do you see as some of the key reactions that are happening? Sure. So there's an element of theater. Mm-hmm. I don't say theater in a sense that is somehow not authentic. Yeah. But we are trying to tell a story and and we think very deeply about the action logic so that we could present a story to the public about the true nature of our society. And when George Floyd was murdered horrifically, people responded organically. Mm-hmm. Right? And I saw the same thing in St. Louis. Working class black people responded organically. And the state reacted, right? So uh, there's like a dynamic element there where I remember in in St. Louis, they put dogs out on people who are mourning the death of a teenager. And then I think they assumed that that repression would have people go back home, but the oppression and the repression added fuel to the fire. Similarly with George Floyd, we saw, I think the, the first overreaction was it was like a broader state of reaction. We saw white armed people protest because they literally, they said this, they want a haircut. It's time for my haircut. We saw that all over the country and we saw how the police reacted, right? We saw how the police negotiated. We saw how the police moved out of their way. Black people mourning the death, the murder, the slow suffocation of a community member at the site of that death and tear gas, rubber bullets, right? It's like that That juxtaposition is the theater that, that I'm talking about. It tells mm-hmm. a story, right? And then people are so outraged, the people who are actually there and the people who witnessed that, and then the people who are able to, now that we have social media, reframe that story, right? So like, you know, I'm not a social media person person. I started off before the mm-hmm. social media age, but I I witnessed that. And one of the tweets that I sent out that went the most viral 
was me just noticing that juxtaposition, right? Mm. And then so people see the the logic in that juxtaposition, and then they recognize that the system is fundamentally flawed. They want to move into action. Some of these people are not closest to the pain. Some of these people are are white people, are mm-hmm. white middle class people. They witness with their own eyes going to protest. These are protests against police violence where police violence happens during the protest. Right. Right? <laughs> so it is a self-fulfilling loop that escalates. So we're now multiple days in and the movement is escalating. There's more people on the streets because every time people go out on the streets, the police overreact. Yeah. So they tell the story that we've been telling as Black people for generations, right? That the state has been fundamentally violent and will use violence in order to protect itself and in order to protect racial and economic caste. It will view you as an enemy, whoever you are, even if you're white and middle class, mm-hmm. if you try to challenge race and economic caste. Yeah. You saw the 75-year-old white man who I think is a member um, of a grassroots organization in, in New York. Buffalo, an affiliate of ours. Yeah. Yes, he dared to challenge whiteness mm-hmm. as a white person, and he had to be put in his place. Yeah, Because if enough white people challenge whiteness, if enough white people say, yeah, this whole setup doesn't make any sense, then that is a tipping point moment. And and for law enforcement, they know they're on film, but they're this existential battle for their unchecked authority. And that's why they're going so hard. I know a lot of people that went out, joined the protests, you know, pissed off about George Floyd's murder. And I don't like maybe no love for the police, but not like a deep analysis around the police. And they've been completely changed by that overreaction. Um, like, I'm just wondering where where is the next terrain in terms of getting more people to to see their role in challenging whiteness? Mm. So there will be a point where people will not be in motion on the streets, mm-hmm. um, but people are hungry. So, you know, like to me, part of being an effective organizer is like leading with compassion and humility, mm-hmm. right? And so, I'll, you know, just this one example. So the, the movie, The Help, mm-hmm. which is a, you know, white savior story, it's a trending, the most popular <laughs> movie right now, right? And one thing that I could glean from that, like just trying to be as generous as possible, because <laughs> it's hard to be generous. There's a lot of, there's yeah. a lot of, <laughs> no, I'm sorry. And I just want to say black people have to show so much wisdom to lead us through this. It's, it's, Yo, it's profound. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, that's, that's a rough one, but is that people are curious mm-hmm. and they're, they're trying to make meaning in this moment. Yeah. Right. And so I think there's an opportunity for mass political education, but in a popular way, not in a heady academic way. Mm-hmm. Right where we could begin to break these things down in a way that makes sense. And until until white people see racial justice as their fight and not as 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 charity, mm-hmm. we will always have a very solid uh, constituency to defend white supremacy. Right. Yeah. And, and I think people really need to understand why white supremacy um, absolutely hurts black folks. In, in, in some very materially hard ways, but doesn't benefit any any working person. It's like, look, there are corporations that do not care about people. They just 
they don't even care about people. Forget about race. They don't care about people. The corporation cares about its growth. And they are aligned with a strategy that attempts to organize white people around white Christian identity in order to get them to vote for a corporate agenda. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, we need to work to help people connect the dots. Because in this moment, so many people are reasoning that, yes, structural racism exists. Mm-hmm. And I have questions. What happened to that man was unjust. There's so many mothers of all races that heard him cry out for his mother. Mm-hmm. Every time I think about that, I cry. Yeah. Every single time. He's a big guy. And one of his last words was him calling out to his mother. Right. Across race. Mm-hmm. Across this is like deeper than partisanship. This is getting down to the soul level. It's hard to witness that and not have that transform you. Yeah. And so we have an opportunity now that people are open to engage in that critical work. So you relocated to Ferguson after Mike Brown was killed, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Like, what did you learn from that experience? And then also, why is this moment different than that moment? Yeah, I mean, that experience is so complicated. Um, so I was inspired by the young people in St. Louis. I was watching a live stream. I saw the protest lines. I picked up the phone and I reached out to the Organization for Black Struggle. Mm, right. You know, one of the things I always stress with people is that if there's uh, an uprising in a particular city, don't ever come uh, <laughs> Don't ever come uninvited, right? Just don't ever come uninvited, you know? And I reached out to the Organization for Black Struggle and I said, hey, I, I want to be in solidarity. What do you need? I could connect you with various folks in Black movement who will follow your call, follow your leadership, do what you need. They said, look, let me get back to you, right? And then they called back and they're like, all right, well, um, we're having a direct action this weekend. So if direct action folks could come. We, we need more hands. Mm-hmm. And so what was supposed to be a five-day weekend turned into five months. Wow. After my five days, I had to stay longer. Right. Uh, because, um, you know, in the fire, you know, you just build these deep connections when you, like, it was very intense. It was very traumatic. But you build real, very deep bonds with folks. And you make commitments. Yeah. I've made lifelong commitments to some of the people that I met those yeah. days. And um, the movement is long, right? Right. This, so the Black Liberation Movement spans, you know, four centuries. But I look at Ferguson as being, um, and, you know, all props to the folks in St. Louis and uh, the incredible courage of the folks in, in Ferguson, the folks in St. Louis. People have to lift up their struggle as being an inflection point in that movement, mm-hmm. right? So a lot of stuff happened before Ferguson. A lot of stuff happened after Ferguson. Yeah. That's a key inflection point, Right. You know, from there, you know, we had Baltimore and North Charleston and Charlotte. And I, with a dozens of other folks, helped to build the movement for Black Lives and to create an ecosystem that was coordinated but decentralized and imperfect and uneven. And, you know, it's the nature of movements and so many lessons learned and so many victories and so many, um, you know, on and on and on. But the movement for Black Lives shifted consciousness around anti-Black racism about state violence in a way that was sustained and set the foundation 
for this particular moment, right? We're already starting educated by the movement for Black Lives around key concepts around state violence. We're already educated through the learning Black Lives Matter, right? right? Within Black Lives Matter, there is political education taking place just by saying that phrase. We've already established that. And there's a whole young generation who grew up during the Black Lives Matter moment, right? And so people much younger than us understand race, class, and gender in very different ways. Like intersectionality, intersectionality, when I was coming up, was not a popular frame, was not something that was even spoken about in a lot of organizing spaces. It was very academic. Legal spaces were talking about it. People did not know who the Kahambi River Collective were unless you were nerding out. You know, a lot of this stuff was very niche. Prison abolition, so organizations like Critical Resistance were on the very fringe. People thought CR was nuts, like what they were coming up with. Theorists and academics like Angela Davis and other folks who were pushing boundaries around this stuff, you know, more than a decade ago, 15 years ago, plus 20 years ago, here we are. So we have to like put that all into context. And and it's important to understand, like, do you do the day-to-day work, humbly inching along the day-to-day organizing? Your organization goes from 100 members to 125 members to, you know, back to 75 because you made a a mistake or, uh, you know, around a, a calculation, then back to 100. And, you know, you figure out how to train folks and, you know, your organization collapses, but three of those people start a new organization. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, this is the the inching along. And, like, you know, five of those people, they develop really great political education and they, they eventually become national movement leaders, mm-hmm. you know. And so this is the kind of untold story of how movements actually happen. Yeah. Um, and what sets the groundwork. And then a moment like this, a whirlwind moment like this happens. And then all those things come into play. You know, on top of the context of COVID-19 and depression level economics and, you know, multiple Black people, not just George Floyd, but multiple Black women and trans people and other folks who were killed just over the past few months. And four decades of the neoliberal era that has sucked so many resources, specifically from Black communities, but working Mm -hmm. General, it's just like and 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 so um, when I think about 2014 and I think about now, it's like it was the perfect storm for Black people to be in open revolt. <laughs> right. You know, you know, it was like the perfect storm, and this time it was a Black revolt that turned into a multiracial movement for Black lives. Right. And so the character of this movement is very multiracial, multi generational, and. We've shifted the conversation. They tried to do the similar narrative. It's not working. Mm-hmm. So, so around this time, under normal conditions, the conversation will be about tactics. Right. Good protesters versus bad protesters. Nonviolent versus violent. They burned down a police department. And a majority of Americans said, yep, that makes sense. Yeah, I know. It's, yes. Like, they, they polled people on it. They're like, yep, no, I understand it. I get it. I get I get why somebody might do that. And we could be just talking about that still, right? Yep. That could yep. be the main conversation. I feel like no. it might have been five years ago. Like, yeah, five years ago, it would have been about the destruction of property. That no longer holds uh, relevance in the same way. People have moved on from that. And people are starting from this place where they're like, what do we do about it? Mm-hmm. Even Republicans and conservatives can't escape the fact that, unless they're very, very fringe, right? 
that we have to address police reform, right? So it's now like how we do something about it. You know, so the scale is different. The multiracial nature of it is different. The fact that independents and Republicans are actually being moved Mm -hmm. is different. So how this is a polarizing moment is different. The acceleration of us gaining concrete victories is different. We're just days in. Right. And Minneapolis is going to start from scratch. They're right. like, yeah, we're done with this police department. We're going to figure out something else. And many, many others are openly talking about defunding police. And many, many others are talking about uh, concrete police reform. And many, many others are talking about the paternal order of the police and the fact that, that we have to break away from their political power. And local elected officials, I mean, Democrats and Republicans have been hands off around this. Local elected oh, yeah. officials are talking about either not taking FOP money, giving it back. I mean, this is a transformative moment. What should people know about what's what's next? Like we're organizers, we always have a plan for what's next. What's the movement for Black Lives have planned that's next? So what's next? I'm very happy to uh, share with you that the movement for Black Lives is organizing a mobilization around the 19th of June, which is Juneteenth. It's, it's a sacred territory on the calendar for Black people. It's one holiday that is about Black resistance specifically, and Black liberation and Black freedom. And so we're, we're using it as a moment to have a conversation about what's next, to bring people in around the Black radical tradition, when we feel like this might be a moment of co-optation, mm-hmm. to promote and to lift up the organic action that's happening on the ground, and to point people to dozens and dozens of grassroots, Black-based and centered organizations that are doing the work every single day. And so we'll be asking people to take action everywhere, either in your home, if you're observing social distancing and you're you're quarantining in your home. If you plan to be uh, out on the streets, like many people are showing up every single day, Mm -hmm. then we're going to give a container for you to do that in your community. And then for folks in D.C. or in the D.C. area that want want to, we will have actions uh, the full weekend, Friday, Saturday and Sunday in D.C., so the 19th, uh, 20th, and 21st, right? That's right. That's right. And each day we're going to tell a story about a different demand. Day one, we want people to think about how we invest in Black communities. Day two, we want to have a, a serious conversation around why we talk about defunding the police. And day three, we want to put a spotlight on our demand that Donald Trump resign. We think he crossed a red line when he ordered the military to attack Americans. And he, we think that he isn't fit to lead. You laid out some principles on some call I was on yesterday. I don't know if you want to lay those out, but then I have a couple of questions about them. Sure, sure. So, yeah, principle number one, right? Respect Black leadership. And we want to be clear about what that means. It doesn't mean defer to any Black person at any point in time for any reason. Uh, It means means show thoughtfulness and respect to, to Black leadership, especially if you're in a particular city or town, there probably are Black organizations and Black leaders that have been working very hard over generations or over years on some of these concerns, some of these demands, and show some respect, some deference, uh, uh, listen to them, support them, elevate their work, and just be generally respectful, you know, like, you know, be a mensch, you know, (laughs) especially when you're being invited into somebody's movement, right? You know, find your lane, which means whatever you do, if you do art, if you do direct action, if you do music, whatever you do, if you're a young person, find your lane and rock out on that lane Mm -hmm. uh, because there's a diversity of tactics. If you care about electoral justice, 
Um, make all Black Lives Matter. So, you know, again, back to that intersectional analysis, race, class, and gender matters. So we think it's important that when we say Black Lives Matter, we're talking about trans Black people. We're talking mm-hmm. about Black people who are returning uh, to our communities from being incarcerated. We're talking about Black people um, who aren't the perfect victim or the perfect, mm-hmm. you know, but Black people are complicated. You know, Black people have that diverse experience. Black people have different ethnic backgrounds, but different countries of birth, different, come from different regions. And so that's important. Uh, we want folks to change the system. So again, not just nibbling around the the edges, but systemic change. We've fought for 400 years for systemic change. We want it and we feel like we've earned it and we're calling for it now. Mm -hmm. Invest in Black communities. So this is part of our our divest invest strategy, right? We want folks to take action by supporting Black vendors, supporting Black organizations, for calling for governmental investment in Black communities to erase the 40 years of disinvestment through the neoliberal era. And the last thing is do the work at home. So yes, elevate the big demands, go to the big marches, but work on yourself, on anti-Black racism in yourself, in your family, in your ethnic community, and in your local city council. So Mm -hmm. focus on the grassroots organizing demands that you're closest to. So those are the seven uh, principles. Like spell out what it means for non-Black people to not sit on your hands waiting for marching orders and not do yep. shit. So what, what I what I tell non-Black people is that your anxiety around possibly getting something wrong has nothing to do with my liberation. Mm-hmm. Nothing at all. Nothing at all. Yeah. So um, if the reason you're sitting on your hands is because you're afraid of making mistakes, then that really is a personal, insular, self-centered concern. That isn't a collective, communal, social change concern. You don't want to deal with the discomfort, the embarrassment, the shame that might come along with getting something wrong. That has nothing to do with me. That has nothing to do with my freedom. That has nothing to do with collective freedom. And so you need to do the work on your own, personally, to get over that and understand that the human condition is frail, the human condition is flawed. And so by by your very nature, your very human nature, you will get things wrong, right? And just engage that, engage your humanity and go out and fight. Now, it doesn't mean you're not intentional. Be intentional, be as intentional as possible, but act. One of the key principles you mentioned is investing in black communities. What does it mean to invest in black communities? So in terms of investment, right? This is a really important conversation. You know, I understand why it might sound really strange for people to talk about defunding the police or abolition of the police. Or I understand if if you're not familiar with those concepts, why they might seem strange to you. But if you are white, even if you're not middle class or upper middle class, if you have been white in an upper middle class neighborhood, that experience where you have little to no interaction with law enforcement and the little interaction that you have is very, very pleasant. <laughs> That's what we want. We want what y'all, what y'all got, right? You don't interact with the police. You don't. You commit all types of crimes. Your kids, like, buy drugs, do them, make mistakes. You get into domestic disputes. You steal cable. You do all types of stuff. And there's no watchful eye of the law intervening. And you do fine. 
it thinks everything works out. And some people say, but yeah, but in upper middle class white communities, I mean, you have to factor in the fact that, you know, people have really good jobs. There's high employment. Mm -hmm. Their schools are really good. Ha, that is the point. Now you're getting it. When we talk about investment, mm -hmm. that's what we want. We want investment in the stuff that you have and take for granted. If you either have experienced living in a, a upper middle class white community, or if you're listening right now from the relative privilege of an upper middle class white community, we, we think as co-equal citizens, the stuff that you take for granted, we've earned that too. In fact, we think we have a historical claim to that that supersedes mm -hmm. your claim to it because our ancestors spent hundreds of years accumulating the wealth that allowed that to happen and we didn't get any of the upside, right? So that is the race class analysis that is operating here. And we're like, yo, we want this now. We don't want to wait for it. We mm -hmm. deserve it just like you do. And how can we tolerate police budgets growing decade after decade after decade when budgets for education and homelessness and our parks and uh, our schools and like decade after decade after decade become underinvested? It's like we have tolerated and witnessed defunding mm -hmm. for generations when it comes to working class people, when it comes to poor people, and definitely when it comes to black people and other people of color, we've witnessed it, we've tolerated it, we've celebrated it, right? The minute we call for the defunding of something that kills us, it's when it all of a sudden it's radical. Well, we've experienced the fact that you actually don't think defunding is radical. Maybe the, the radical thing is actually being able to withstand what it means when black people are properly treated as human and full citizens, and therefore we are required to engage in the structural relief to black people because they're full citizens. And so that's what we're talking about when we're talking about divesting from police and investing in black communities. I was talking to a SNCC elder the other day, and this was my summation of what I heard was extend the moment this is a, like one of the most transformative moments, you know, in the fight for black lives, at least in the last 50 years, like extend it. Second, help as many people make meaning and where people start on that meaning making journey is going to be different. And we've got to win shit. Like you can't come out of this without actual change. Narrative and extension is not enough. So I don't know. Any thoughts on those three That's or right. just real quick? I would say this that there's people who are feeling discomfort because of the volatility of the action that's happening on the streets. So you're going to see people who want to pivot. They're like, great. So thank you for framing this for us. We're going to pass some laws. Right. And that I think is a misassessment that is, you know, um, counterproductive. We are in the first inning. So we have to stoke the fires mm -hmm. of resistance. That is the job of any proper left. <laughs> when you're in a movement moment, like extend, celebrate, flank, support is going to be wily. It's going to be uncomfortable. And just just ride that wave to wherever it goes and celebrate the, the, the sacrifice and the courage of the people who are on the front lines of that. So that's number one. I agree with that fully. Number two, making meaning. So yes, there's a narrative intervention that needs to happen. While people are like, what's going on? We need to readily have the answer. And we need to do it 
with compassion and humility because people are like legitimately like unsure and seeking to make meaning and are sort of stumbling upon concepts that might be old hat to people who are hard in the paint over decades, but people are are experiencing these revelations. And I think this is one of the differences to me as the the organizer sensibility versus the activist sensibility. It's very easy to kind of poo-poo people. It's like, where have you been the past 400 years, right? But it's our job as as organizers always to invite people. We're, We're about addition. We want to win. We believe in victory and we believe that our ideas are our majoritarian uh, ideas. And so when people come to our ranks in whatever condition that they're in, it's our job to meet them where they're at. But then absolutely, there are concessions that need to be gained. And there's a, a spectrum of concessions. And this goes back to find your lane. There's an inside-outside game and there's an outside-outside and an outside-outside-outside. And everybody needs to understand the the utility of that. There will be people out on the streets advocating for things that most people think are crazy. And there will be people that will tell you that people out in the streets advocating for those things is being counterproductive because it undermines the movement. And those people are wrong. Yeah, same. Right? You always need cutting edge demands that are pulling Mm -hmm. us further and further, right? And that gives us opportunities if you're further down the stream to engage and and lock in concrete victories. So for example, elected officials don't know what's going on right now. And they're just like, oh, defund the police, I don't know. This is the time for people who engage those elected officials readily to have conversations with people on the front lines, negotiate with them and be like, hey, we think we could get these people to this line. And we think there's a way to get them to this line that doesn't undermine your crazy bold ideas. Could we align? And to me, that's a movement ecosystem that's operating with sophistication and cooperation, collaboration, where the cutting edge activists are in communication with folks who deal with elected officials every day. And they understand that they're in different lanes, but they're playing different essential roles so that cutting edge activists could operate on the level of ideas and the people who are engaging with elected officials could lock down concrete mm-hmm. victories that change people's material conditions so that everyday people don't become cynical when it comes to movements. They can say that that movement changed my life. Say it. That is our job, right? Our, our fight as organizers, our fundamental cognitive challenges around cynicism. Cynicism is a right-wing strategy and a right-wing project. And if we allow cynicism to take hold, we have to fight left cynicism everywhere. And it happens in all parts of the movement, but it often happens when you're in your lane and all you could do is poo-poo somebody else. When you're on the front lines and all you could do is poo-poo anybody who's doing something different as being a reformist or reactionary. When you're constantly in the halls of government and and all you do is poo-poo anybody who's not doing what you're doing as being an unsophisticated um, sort of like loony, like fringe left, Right. We need to be able to operate Mm -hmm. as a movement and understand the various roles that we play. And then we could actually win. But when we engage in um, sort of sectarian fights, when we're winning, it is the to me. I question whether or not people who are engaging in sectarian fights when when the left is winning, whether or not you actually want to win. What I, I say is like. There's folks in our midst that are allergic to victory and afraid of power. 
And there is work that we have to do in order to do the political education. To me, that's a political education gap where we understand ultimately this is about power. Us creating power together versus the power over that they've installed. And this is about victory. This isn't about being the opposition. This is about being in power. Like Donald Trump and uh, the white supremacists that have invaded the, the federal government, Steve Bannon and Steve Miller, they were in mm-hmm. the fringe, but they believed in themselves and they believed in victory. They believed that they could take power and they did. And my question to progressives and the left, do you believe mm-hmm. in victory? Do you believe that you should be in power? Are you comfortable being the, the safe and trusted opposition? And in this moment, this is a moment where we get to test that out. You, my friend, are one of the great leaders, organizers, and thinkers in this moment. I love you. That was awesome. Go catch up. You look like you got 7,000 text messages. (laughs) All right. Take care. I feel like Maurice reminded us that organizing at its best, it's a project of addition, not subtraction, that we've got to be thinking about how are we bringing more people in? I feel like Maurice also challenged us to be prepared for a push to moderate our position and to back off our big ideas and to cower at the possibility of having the power we need to realize those ideas. As I look back at my organizing career, as far as I can tell, we have never won more by demanding less. So let's push back when people push back on us. Defunding police is not a new idea. It's an idea that people have been working on for a long time. And it's actually not as radical as a lot of people might think. What's radical is the the situation we have now. So currently we have a system that is not working for people. And our solution to that has been to throw more money at it, policing. And then we have things that actually work, like providing better and more mental health services, schools, healthcare, affordable housing, things that do work and we actually don't fund those things. Let's flip this on its head and stop funding the stuff that doesn't work and do fund the stuff that does work. Fellow white folks, as we all try to do more to address racism in this country, we're gonna make mistakes. I'm gonna make mistakes and we need to get over it. It's not the job of black people to hold us as we work through our anxiety and things that are actually our shit and asking someone who's part of a 400 year history of being treated as expendable to hold our anxiety, like that is not a thing. It certainly shouldn't be. And I wrestle with this. I know many people listening wrestle with this. If you wanna talk about this, call me. Because even more problematic than making mistakes is actually doing nothing. Because that means having no impact to address racism. And I think one of the most powerful parts of right now is that so many people are realizing that being silent or not taking action for whatever reason is a form of being complicit. And we have to move from thinking racism is a bad thing, a thing we want to go away, to actually being proactive and doing things that address it. And moving to action starts right now, starting with the mobilizations that Maurice described that begin on June 19th. You can learn more at People's Action dot org slash next move you can find maurice on twitter at maurice wfp this podcast was produced by people's action and the mashup americans it is executive produced by amy s Choi and rebecca lair 
Our senior producer is Sarah Pellegrini. Our development producer is Melissa Lowe. Production manager, Shelby Sandlin. Bye now.